welcome once more to our worship service. And for those online, I encourage you next week, August 2nd, is our first official public worship service. And so if you haven't signed up for our English service, especially if you watch us online for our English, make sure you're here. There's nothing like gathering with God's people uh, for the day of worship. So we encourage you to sign up and don't worry, we'll, we have precautions. That's why we've been practicing these last couple of weeks. Uh, we have precautions set up. Uh, there's space in the auditorium. You won't feel uh, claustrophobic. We're not going to pack you together. There's, there's six feet of distance between all of us. So we just encourage you to show up, be here, and worship together with God's people. Uh, once again, we're in John chapter 5. And so we're going to uh, continue in our study of John and... Most importantly, friends, what we've been really discussing is the fact that the identity of Jesus is at play here. The question that will continuously arise and the question that I will consistently present to you is, who is Jesus? Who is he in the word of God? And what has Jesus done for you? What is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the question that must be presented continuously because depending on the answer, we'll go one of two ways. We'll see him as a mere person or we'll see him as his true identity is reflected in the gospel. The Savior of the universe, the Savior of our lives, the Redeemer of sinners. Once you take your stance on either one of those options or, or answers, then you'll identify where you stand before God. And so for the first time, Jesus opens up with a long monologue explaining for a fact who he is. Jesus is telling us in the scripture who he is. And so this passage becomes very clear and very important for us to study. So as we evaluate this passage today, we will stand before the words of Christ and realize that what Christ is calling us to do in this passage is to see him not only as our Savior, but be warned that he is also the judge. There is a day of judgment, friends. That doesn't matter if you're Christian or not. The reality is that there is a day of judgment, and we may have a false sense of security in our Christianized environment. We may think at times that we're safe because we are in church or because we know the gospel, but there is a day of judgment, and Jesus will clearly present this to us. So today is a good day to evaluate where you stand before our God, where you stand before Jesus. So Jesus seeks to be known now because he is the only life giver. And in this passage, he doesn't only present himself as the life giver, but he also presents himself as the one who has the power to judge our lives. He gives life, but he also judges our life. We often see Jesus as more compassionate and more merciful and more loving and more graceful. 
But here we'll read that Jesus himself has authority to judge and authority in the sense to send people to hell. And I know we don't like to say that, but that's what the Word of God teaches us, that Jesus does. And so this is his words coming to life. So our next passage is of utter importance for us to evaluate and study. Here the Lord Jesus, uninterrupted, goes on a, the longest monologue up until this point. He talked extensively with Nicodemus in chapter 3, but here it goes even further. It goes all the way to the end of the chapter. Right now we're going to kind of section this off in, in certain verses and in certain sections. But this is Jesus' uninterrupted monologue defending his identity from those who do not understand him. And so friends, there are people in our culture, there are people in our current world pandemic that do not understand Jesus. Many of your friends don't understand Jesus. Many of your co-workers don't understand Jesus. Many of people in church don't understand Jesus. So Jesus is very clear. Jesus wants to make sure you and I, and especially those whom he's talking to uh, personally in the gospel, he wants to make sure that they know who he is. And if we rewind a little bit in John chapter 5, last week Pastor Ishmael led us through the, the, that moment of healing in that pool of Bethsaida. And so up until this point, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders question who this guy thinks he is. Specifically because he breaks the commandment of not working, uh, of working on the Sabbath. And so when this arises, there is a, a moment of, of anger. And, and remember... Up until chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is loved and accepted at a superficial level by many people. I mean, Jesus is pretty cool, pretty understanding. He's doing these miraculous things, and a lot of people are amazed by what Jesus does. And so they are willing to accept him, but starting chapter 5, we've, begin, we've begun to see some resistance towards Jesus. Because Jesus begins to do and say things that just won't fly with with regular people. And, and so when he does this, and why we read as he does, is he's not afraid to clarify who he is and what he's done. He's not afraid to stand before people and say what his mission is. Therefore, we either accept it or not. The people that he confronts will either accept him or not. But that's who Jesus is. And so there's resistance here. If you go back to verse 18... At the beginning of our passage, we, what, what did we read? This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to what? To kill him. And once again, why did they seek to kill him? Well, verses 1 through 17, Jesus heals, and he heals on the day that is not, there's not supposed to be any work, but then the man picks up his mat and then moves and walks, and they say, you can't do that on the Sabbath. And so, because of religion and legalism, they sought to kill Jesus. And then it goes on to say, because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, here's what Jesus said, even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So here we have two things. Jesus works and what Jesus says. None are accepted by the religious system. 
There is pushback and there is resistance against this Jesus. What did Jesus do? He made a lame man walk. He healed somebody that was sick for 30 plus years. That person now has life. And people didn't like it. And then he said, I do as my father does. People didn't like that either. So again, the ministry of Jesus is that. What he does will not be accepted and what he says will not be accepted only by those who hear that he opens up their hearing. And we'll get to that in a little bit. So, by healing on the Sabbath, Jesus shows that he has the same authority as God. And this is the, 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 the theme of our message today and the theme of this chapter. Jesus has authority. Jesus is king. And so church, before we go any further, for all those here and for those watching online, as we go through this passage, we must bring to heart and mind this realization that Christ has control, that Christ has authority, that Jesus knows how to govern, that Jesus knows how to justly execute his judgment. He knows us. He hears us. He acts on our behalf. And that is why there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in his name because he is mighty to save. Jesus has power. And so when he identifies himself, he identifies himself as that, that person whom, like the Father, has authority over this world and over his people. And so we seek comfort in that because we don't sing to somebody that doesn't have authority. We don't sing about someone that was just a good person. We don't sing about someone who merely did good things. We sing about someone who has authority over my life, over your life, over this world. He has authority over all. And so in this section, what Jesus is doing is he's addressing the religious system, but in reality, he's addressing those who will have to make a decision on what they believe about Jesus, the identity of Jesus. And so what he does is uh, he offers this systematic defense. This is impressive what Jesus does. He goes systematically through his identity, proving his identity as if he's standing in a courtroom before a jury. And he's proving detailedly, and that's why this passage is so important, it often gets overshadowed by the Sermon on the Mount or, or by other, or the Bread of Life Sermon in, in, in John chapter 6, but this passage is the, the, the initial statement of who Jesus says he is. So we have to make sure that we're paying attention and we have to make sure that we read and understand what he says. Four things he, he will, will kind of hover around these four elements as we discuss this passage. What does Jesus say? Four things. One of the things he says first is that he and his father do the same work. And we're going to discuss that as we go through the passage. That's one of his declarative statements proving his identity. If they charge Jesus with breaking the Sabbath, those who fail to understand who he is, they also charge God with breaking the law because Jesus and God are one and the same. Jesus is making this clear, he has equality 
with God. He is of the same essence of God. Number two, another declarative statement that proves Jesus' identity by his own words is that he is the son of man. We, we sang that earlier, and what Jesus is referencing here in verse 27 is that Jesus says of himself that he is the anticipated one of whom the Jews were thinking and anticipating, of whom the Jews were looking to for salvation. The Jews in themselves understood the prophetic message from the Old Testament. They understood that the Son of Man would come in and usher in a new government. The Son of Man would come in and, and bring in a new age and a more powerful kingdom. This was a prophetic revelation given to the, the Jewish nation and in, in a sense setting up the Messiah in the book of Daniel. You don't have to go there, but Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 is a very familiar passage which says, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man. There's the title, the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the son of man that he declares himself to be is Obviously, a connection to Daniel chapter 7, letting the Jewish nation know, it's me. I'm ushering in this new age, this new government, and it's not complete yet. But it's me, a kingdom that will be everlasting and will never be destroyed. And friends, that's why we worship Jesus, because we are, as his church, as his people... We are serving a king whose government and nation and country and, 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 and place of authority can never be demolished, will be everlasting, and will go on for decades. We've studied, uh, if you've gone to, to history class, or if you remember a little bit of, hi of history class, you'll remember the great Roman Empire, but friends, it died down. The great Egyptian Empire died down. Nothing lasts except for this one kingdom that is ushered in by Jesus Christ. So when he says, the son of man, I am the son of man, that's what he's implying. And that's what the Jewish nation had such a difficult time to understand. What do you mean you're the son of man? The son of man is going to bring in a new kingdom, man. You, you're not doing anything. You, you came to, uh, in, in, in a poor place. You're, not, you don't, you're no king. You don't have authority. In a sense, they don't understand what he's doing. Jesus, first and foremost, his duty was not only to usher in a physical kingdom so that they can serve a great and mighty king, but Jesus is preoccupied with healing the nation, which starts in the heart as the savior of the universe. That's why, again, I always pull you back to John chapter 1, so that we remember that beautiful introduction of the gospel where John the Baptist sees Jesus walking to his baptism and he says, behold the Lamb of God. He identified him clearly as the Savior of the universe by the cleansing of sin. The Lamb representing the sacrifice, the blood, the cleansing of our sin. John, in, a, in, in, a, in essence, didn't tell all the people there, there's the king. 
John said, there's the lamb who first and foremost will wash away your sin so that you can honor your king with freedom and with liberty and you're not going to be bound to the change of sin. So that's what the Son of Man implies. And we'll get there a little bit more detail, maybe this week, maybe next week, or, or as we continue in our study of John chapter 5. But that's what Jesus says he is. Another uh, wonderful uh, statement that Jesus says is, or implies is that his actions are backed up by his words. Or, or vice versa, his words are backed up by his actions. And we see this when Jesus heals the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida. He heals this lame man, showing that what he says can be backed up by what he does. What has been said of the Messiah in the Old Testament will be backed up by what Jesus does in the New Testament. The prophets often spoke, like Isaiah said, that the lame will leap like a deer. Jeremiah says that the, when the Messiah comes, there's a, the lame and the sick will be healed when he appears. And so Jesus goes on to prove that once more, not only to make them amazed at the power, but to fulfill the promise, to fulfill the prophecy, to prove his identity. Who is he? He is the son of man. Who is he? He is the Lagos of God. Who is he? He is God incarnate. Who is he? He is Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus does this to show who he is. And therefore our confidence revolves around this person who can execute authority because he has heaven's authority behind him. And one of the, the final statements he makes, the fourth one, is that he is a life giver and he is also a judge, which is what we started with at the beginning. He gives life and Jesus clearly shows that what he does, God does. This is what the Jews understood and the more more of the reason why the Jews rejected Jesus. Because for the Jews, they understood passages in, in, in their scripture, like 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, that says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. For the Jewish people, only God can make people alive. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, we read, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. So only God brings to life and only God judges. The Jewish nation and the people of Israel, they understood that. And so when Jesus comes in saying, I give life and I judge, there is resistance. Who are you to say that you give life and judge? But once again, the words of Jesus conflict the hearer. The person who will always evaluate him or, or critique him based off his words and analyze him to fit within their framework. This is what Jesus begins to demolish. He doesn't come in to fit within our framework. He doesn't come in to fit within how we want Jesus to be. He comes in to demolish our framework, to demolish what we think of Jesus in order to present who he really is. Life giver and judge and oftentimes that's not very well accepted we all love the jesus that gives life 
I'm alive. He, he gives me a new life. He makes me new. But judge? No, that, that doesn't sound comfortable. How is Jesus our judge? But that's who he says he is. Not by us thinking of it, but because he says it. And so Jesus enters this courtroom setting, as we will read, and begins his monologue by calling us to attention, and specifically the, the first century Jewish nation that is listening to what he has to say. So if you actually read this from verse 19 all the way to verse 47, I believe, all the way, yeah, all the way down to verse 47, you'll read that Jesus is proving who he is one step at a time. So look at verse 19. We'll see if we could divide this in several sections, and I'll try my best to get to verse 29, but it, most of it is, is implied. After verse 24, we're going to divide this section, verse 19 through 23, and then verse 24 through 29, because verse 24 through 29 is, uh, is Jesus explaining what he just said. So it's kind of similar, but it's an explanation from Jesus' lips. In verse 19, Jesus, well, in this brief section, Jesus states the unity that he has with the Father in verse 19 and then backs it up with four sequential explanatory conjunctions. And let me ex just briefly explain what that is. Jesus clarifies in verse 19 what he is. He has unity with the Father. And then after verse 19, there's th four, three reasons why, well, four reasons, including 19, four reasons why he says what he just said, and then he concludes it in verse 23 with the purpose. So the first verse 19 gives us an explanation of what Jesus says, or, or gives us a declarative state, statement of what Jesus says, and the following verses give us an explanation of why that is. So in verse 19 through 22... Or in verse 23, sorry, he gives the purpose for his statement to introduce this purpose of his functioning here as the Son of Man. So back to verse 19. That was just a little summary of what we're going to be studying. But verse 19, when Jesus says, the Son can do nothing on his own, it should not be mistaken to mean that Jesus is less than God. Some theologies out there now and day mistake it to mean that. You see, Jesus is not God, for Jesus himself says that he cannot do anything on his own. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus stresses here, and the fact that we can see the authority of Jesus, is he has unity with God. And we'll explain that as we go along. Jesus immediately qualifies this statement by saying, but only what he sees the Father doing. You see that? In essence, everything that the Father does, so does the Son. If the Father acts in all his power and might, so does the Son. So we cannot come to a conclusion that Jesus is less than God because everything God does, Jesus does too. That's why the statement is qualified and I'll read it to you again so Jesus said to them in verse 19 truly truly I say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise the father acts so does 
the Son. The limitations of the Son in His humanity are connected with the limitlessness of the Father. People had difficulty back then, and in the third and first three centuries, uh, uh, centuries in reality, everyone had a problem with the person of Jesus Christ. And there was so many Christological confusion that, that people began to come up with many theories on who Christ said he was. But because God is unlimited and has all power, and Jesus does everything that the Father does, it gives us clear indication that Jesus is unlimited like the Father, and does so in a like manner. The Son does whatever the Father does, as well as with the Father. That's the unity of the Godhead. And when we talk about the Godhead, we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There is unity amongst the Godhead. And so whatever God does, the Son does likewise and with the Father. Yet, they are distinct. They're not the same person. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. They're distinct in function. And so what the Father does, the Son does likewise. It is a functioning of unity within the Godhead. Why does Jesus have authority? Because he does as the Father does in a like manner. So remember that the Father is the Father and the Son is the Son, but they operate in agreement. They will never be disjointed. They will never, Jesus will never do something that the Father doesn't do. That's why Jesus, in a sense, is unlimited because he does everything that the Father does. So what this teaches us is three beautiful aspects of this relationship. The Son does nothing apart from the Father. Two, the Son knows the Father intimately. And three, the Son is obedient to the Father, therefore showing who he is perfectly. You want to see the Father? You want to know who God is? See Jesus. The Old Testament saints lived in a time, and the book of Hebrews is clear on this, and First Peter is clear on this. The Old Testament saints longed to live within the New Testament context. Because the Old Testament saints visualized by faith who the Father was. And the Old Testament saints had this understanding of God when he would come down through the voice of the prophets. And he would come down in these theophanies like what we've been studying in, on Wednesday nights and Thursday nights through a burning bush or, 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 or writing on the wall uh, or this voice from heaven or smoke on a mountain. But they never saw a physical representation of God. The New Testament saints those that lived within the context of Jesus' time got to see God in the face of Jesus because he was God. And so they longed for this, and the Jewish nation that was before Jesus could not accept what Jesus was saying and could not accept his authority. Up until today, they still reject the Messiah. They're still waiting for their own Messiah. But this is beautiful what Jesus begins to say. I mean, all these implications give us direct access to how Jesus wants to be perceived. Jesus says who he says he is and doesn't want to be mistaken about it. 
Think about it. If you, pre- uh, if you go to a social gathering, and right now it's very difficult to go to any social gathering, but let's say we're pre-corona times, and we go to a social gathering, a birthday party, or an office party, or whatever it is that we may be at, and we go and you say, hello, my name is Timmy, and, um, and I love basketball, and I do this, and I'm a computer network guy, and I'm this, and I do this. You tell what you want people to know about you. You explain who you are before others that don't know you so that you may be understood the way you want to be understood. So if you say that you are a networking engineer, then you should not get any questions about uh, anything other out of your field that you won't feel comfortable answering. And, and so Jesus gives us straight depiction Accurate representation of who he is so no mistakes can be found. So now that he declares this statement that he does what the Father does and therefore has authority, he explains it. Verse 20, we have the second conjunction in verse 20. The first conjunction we found in verse 19 when he says, For whatever the Father does, so does the Son. The second conjunction is at the beginning of verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So why does Jesus have authority? Well, first and foremost, because he does everything God does. Secondly, because his actions, his works are rooted in what? What does the text say? Are rooted in love. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And so everything that Jesus will begin to do and has done up until this point is found in love. And this is beautiful because it reminds us of what God did in verse in chapter 3, verse 16. What does John 3:16 say? For God so loved the world. What we get here is the actions of God now acting in Jesus Christ, and it's been given to him in love, so that when Jesus walks and when Jesus talks and when Jesus acts, he does so in a loving manner. So Jesus operates and speaks. In love, even when people reject what he says. It is done so in love. And this is beautiful because these three present tense verbs explain to us the the emphasis of God working through his son. The, The three present tense verbs that we get in this verse are loves, the father loves, the father shows, and the doing. All of this are present tense. So what does that mean? Why do we make a big deal of of Greek grammar and the present tense? Because if this is God presently doing that in Jesus, Jesus is presently doing that with us. So in, in a simple sense, God is still working. That's why at the beginning when we pray and when we come to church, we do it not to only remember what God has done. We don't do it to just look back. We don't do it to just have 
a fond memory as if when we go to visit someone uh, at the grave and we just recall the memories of that person when they were alive. We don't come to church for that. We don't do a memorial service on Sunday mornings. We come to church to worship the great king who is actively working through love in our lives and in this world today. That's why we worship. That's why Sunday mornings is so important. If not, then friends, we could really just go back home and just come bring to memory, hey, remember that Jesus loves us. Oh, that's beautiful. That was, yeah, I remember that he said that he loved us. No, that's not it. Oh, yeah, we, we remember that, that Jesus died on the cross to show us how much he loved humanity. That, that, that's beautiful. That, that, that was, that's so precious. And then move on to our carnesa. We come to church to, to look at the cross and the effects of that cross in our present day circumstance. There's still this roaming lion, lion seeking who to devour. And Jesus stands before us as our defender. Jesus is still acting. Jesus is still moving because God is still loving. God is still showing. And God is still doing. And so Jesus has this authority because God is actively working through the Son. And so because the Father loves the Son, He loves the world. The world receives this love from the actions of the Son. These works are greater works, as the rest of the verse says. And the Father shows through the Son primarily the works that are greater are of salvation. So that they may marvel. And here, this is very important. In that verse, verse 20, the second half. And greater works than these will, be, will he show him so that you may marvel. That you is a plural, plural pronoun talking about all of you that Jesus is speaking to. And he's saying this because they reject him. And when he acts on their behalf in love, he is not speaking only of the great healings that he has done or the great actions that can make them marvel and be like, ooh, oh, wow, that's amazing. He is speaking about these greater works of salvation. They need to understand that Jesus Christ saves. Jesus Christ, like we mentioned in chapter 4, Jesus Christ isn't just their magician. Jesus Christ just isn't merely a wonder worker. He is a savior. And so that they may marvel should come to this important realization that not their law and not their legal system will save them, but Jesus will. And maybe these healings will bring their, their attention so that they could come to Christ, as Nicodemus, the Pharisee, did in chapter 3. So Jesus begins to show how he works through love. Why does Jesus have authority? Well, because Jesus says that he does as the Father does. How does he do it? Through love. And the third, the third four that we get here is found in verse 21. This is the, the third explanation of this declarative statement. 
In verse 21, he says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This conjunction, this third conjunction, gives us this this third explanation and emphasis on the working dependence of the Son on the Father's restorative example. What does the Father do? Jesus says the Father restores life. God the Father restores life. What does Jesus do? Restore life. Give life. And so this is what Jesus explains that he can do because the Father does it and now it's his duty just as the Father. Jesus has the freedom to heal, restore to life, just like the Father. Jesus doesn't come beside God to help out. Hey, let me give you a hand, God. It looks like you're a little bit busy. It looks like you need an extra pair of eyes. Let me help you out a little bit. No, Jesus does the restoration himself through the workings of the Father. This is Jesus working on behalf of the Father. And the Jews had a very difficult time understanding this as well. They believed that the raising of the dead could only be done by God. As a matter of fact, in, in, the, in the book of Kings, this King Naaman was sent to the king of Israel to heal his leprosy. And the king replied in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 7. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, I am God. Am I God to kill and to make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. The king of Israel understood, I'm not God. Why are you asking me to heal you? Why are you asking me to restore you life? Also, the book of Deuteronomy and the law and the first and the Pentateuch, the book of Deuteronomy is clear. Chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. In perfect example, God says, it's only me. Only I can bring to life. And so Jesus has authority because now Jesus executes life like the Father. He gives life. He is the true life giver just like the Father. Jesus does not only serve as an agent to raise the dead, but the Son gives life to whom he will. We've seen in the previous chapter, or in the beginning of chapter 5, we read, and if you guys remember last week, you guys studied chapter 5, and you read that the multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, there was a multitude of them all laying around the pool waiting to be healed. What does Jesus do? One man. Jesus only heals One man. Out of the multitude of the sick, Jesus only chose to give life to one. Why didn't Jesus heal everyone? They were all lame. They were all sick. They were all laying and waiting for a miracle. But Jesus decided to choose only one. Why? We don't know. The text doesn't say it. But that just proves that Jesus has freedom 
to give life to whom he wants to give life to. Regardless of the circumstance, regardless, Jesus chooses and Jesus saves that one man and gives him life. That's why we read in chapter 1 verse 4 that in him was life and the light unto the world. Jesus has life within himself and Jesus can give life to whom he chooses to give life to. That's why he has authority over this world. And once again, that's why we worship. The fourth conjunction that we come across in verse 22, which is another emphasis that Jesus does, another explanatory note, another commentary on his declarative statement of him being like God, comes in verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So here, in this verse, in verse 22, this fourth emphasis brings to mind and implies the sonship of God. The decision-making process has been handed over to the Son. The Father no longer needs to judge. Jesus is the judge of all who reject Him. It's not the Father's doing at this point. It's Jesus. Jesus in, in chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it or to judge the world. But the world was already in judgment. And so when the world rejects the Son, Jesus has authority to judge over their lives. Because in essence, by rejecting Christ, they are rejecting His Father. They are rejecting God. Those who believe benefit then from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why the cross is so beautiful to us. Because it represents life. It represents resurrection. And one day we will meet our Redeemer and our Savior who hung on the cross for our lives. But for those who reject Jesus, those who see the cross and laugh or, or move past the cross, those who do not accept the words of Christ, they will not benefit from the resurrection because Christ is alive. Christ will judge the living and the dead. Christ will judge those who have rejected his message and will send them to the place, as he will later say, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the judge. This is Christ, our king, Christ, our judge, Christ, our life giver, Christ, the one who sends those who reject him to hell. This is what Jesus does. It's not in the Father's hands anymore. It's in Jesus' hands. Acts chapter 17 verse 31 says, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is beautiful to those who are saved and have come to Christ. But it is judgment for those who reject Christ. The judgment reflects the authority of Christ has with God. Though God is depicted as seated on the throne at the time of judgment, Jesus also Judges. This is what Jesus does. So, 
All these explanations. The first statement that we read in, in, in verse 19 was what? That he does what the Father does. Why does he do it? Because he sees what the Father does and only does what the Father does. How does he do it? In love. What does he do? He gives life. What else does he do? He judges. And the final verse that we'll study today is that he does all of this for what purpose? The purpose is found in verse 23. That all may honor the Son. So the purpose of Jesus Christ here, friends, of showing his authority and demonstrating and explaining who he is, functions to give us the proper meaning of worship. Jesus has authority not to just stand as a, a dictator over his people. He has authority to stand before in the midst of his people to receive honor, to receive worship. Like the Father, the Son, the Son does works that are rooted in love, gives life and judges, and therefore this purpose functions that we may honor him as we honor the Father. When we honor Jesus, we honor God. Because he is active in the life of Jesus. So the son receives honor equal to that of the father. This is the will of the father. And transferring over to the son the power of life and judgment. So that the son receives adoration because the father loves the son. We read this in, in, in chapter 3, verse 35, and in chapter 5, verse 20, that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And so Jesus deserves worship because the Father has put Him in the middle for us to worship. There is no jealousy in the Godhead. It is for the purpose of worship. Why do we worship Jesus above everything? Because God wants us to worship the Son. The Father has placed the Son in the beginning and, and, and in the end and, and before all things and for all things. And He is at the center of the church and is the head of the church. And so as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, so that the name of Jesus, every knee, should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. At the name of Jesus. Well, let's stand up, folks. If you're at home, I know it's a little weird to stand up for no apparent reason. But if you can't, we have a, Jesus has authority over this world. And that authority functions purposefully for our worship of the Son. Father has no problem with this. There is no jealousy. It is Jesus who has authority over life and death and therefore deserving of worship and honor of his church. You and I need to give him worship. He deserves our worship. Jesus does not come to earth to entertain humanity, but to give it life. It won't be enough on the last day of judgment to have known about Jesus or to have gone to church or Sunday school but to have honored Jesus, to have worshipped the Son. So sing with us. You are worthy.